to show us about yourself and about ourselves this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Well, uh, this morning we are going to finish up our series that we've been working through since September through the book of 1 Corinthians. And I think what I've loved about this book is that as we go through things, we see, as we go through the book, we see that things haven't really changed in the last 2,000 years, uh, that not much has changed. We live in a time where we are more connected through technology, through social media, through cell phones, different things. We, we are more connected than we've ever been, but when we look up and we look around at what's going on around us, we realize that we are more divided than we've ever been. Our society is divided politically, economically, socially, racially, and even within the church, we see that there are deep divisions along denominational lines, along schools of theology. We even see people that argue on Facebook and Twitter about which pastors, which celebrity pastor they follow, whose blog are they reading, whose podcast are they listening to, and we all feel like, well, if you don't listen to my guy, then you're wrong, and we end up dividing over silly things that, that make no difference. The reality is, disunity is crouching at the door of the church. Unity is not something that just happens. It's something we have to fight for. Just like a good marriage, we have to fight for a good marriage. We have to work towards that. And the same is true of unity within the church. And what I love is that this letter written over 2,000 years ago is facing the exact same problem The church in Corinth is in the same boat that we're in today. They are deeply divided as a church. They have all these divisions within their church, and Paul writes this letter to encourage them to be unified because he understands that unity doesn't just happen. They have to be willing to work towards it. And it's been encouraging for me as we make our way through to see all the different ways Paul encourages them to work towards that unity, and he starts by reminding them of their, of their identity in Jesus Christ. And it's something that the church in Corinth had forgotten. Division often starts in the church. One of the first signs uh, that the gospel has been lost is division. Because we forget our identity in Christ that we share together. We forget the love of Christ that we're to demonstrate towards one another. A deep belief in the gospel that results in a love for Jesus will make our identity in, in Christ stronger. And together, because we share that same identity, we will grow in that identity and we will grow in our love for one another. Through faith, Jesus adopts us as children into one family. And he calls us into that family where each individual surrenders their own desires, yields their own needs to those of others, and contributes their own resources, their gifts, their talents, their finances, towards fulfilling one mission the gospel for the glory of Jesus. Paul's intent in writing this and ours in, in preaching it is that we would come to a place where we could repent of our own agendas and say, for the glory of Jesus Christ, we're all going to be on the same page. We're all going to work towards the same thing. We're going to be committed no matter what. We will fight for each other. We will not fight with each other. Because there's a mission that has to be accomplished. There's a mission that Jesus Christ has given His church, and we are His church. We are a part of His church. And sadly, as we look throughout history, we see that 
the greatest hindrance to the mission that God has given His people are the people themselves. Because when the world looks on and they see a, a, a church in disunity, not just a local church, but when they see people fighting about denominations and schools of theology, they say, well, you're no different than anybody else. You talk about how you have Jesus in common, yet you guys can't even get along. So this morning, as we look at this passage, we're going to see that Paul is going to summarize much of what he said throughout this whole book. Chapter 15, he's talked about the resurrection, and he's talked about what's going to happen when Jesus returns. And he's got the Corinthians thinking about heaven, and and in chapter 16, he's going to bring their eyes back to earth, and he's going to say, hey, all this is exciting, and we look forward to when Jesus will return, but we can't forget that there is work for us to do right now. So this morning, if you will, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And what we're going to see is as Paul draws their attention back to earth, he's going to draw their attention to this idea. He's going to return to this theme of unity. And he's going to say, we've got to be unified because there's still work left to do. Let's look at chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. It says, now about the collection for the saints. You should do the... You should do the same as I instructed the Galatian churches. On the first day of the week, each of you should set aside something and save it in keeping with how he prospers so that no collection will be needed to need to be made when I come. When I arrive, I will send letters. uh, I will send with letters those you recommend to carry the gracious gift to Jerusalem. It is suitable from if it is suitable for me to go as well. You can travel with me. All right, so the first thing that I want us to see here is there are some great principles about giving in this passage. And I actually, as I started this week, I started laying out the passage. I was like, man, this would be a whole sermon in itself. Chapters one, verses 1 through 4 of this chapter, I could do an entire sermon, and we are going to come back to that someday. Uh, the, the one thing that I'll leave you with today to think about is this. What do I intentionally set aside in order to support the church, right? So we'll just leave it at that. That one principle, something for you to think through and pray through. What am I intentionally setting aside in order to support the church? But when I look at this passage, when I look at this whole chapter, what I realize is that Paul is talking about something way more than money. Paul has something way bigger than just their money in mind. What Paul wants them to see is that they are a part of one church. That there is one church. Now, we have to ask a couple couple questions. You know, what is this collection that Paul is taking up? Well, we read about the collection is for the saints in Jerusalem. We know that there is a church in Jerusalem. This is where the church started on the day of Pentecost. There are believers there, and if you go back to the book of Acts, you read that there's a prophet from among the believers, a man named Agabus, who comes and he says, hey, there's going to be a great famine here in Jerusalem, and we need to be prepared. The church is already being persecuted. The people are suffering, and then they get word about this famine. And so Paul says, hey, I'm going to go around to the churches that I've helped start, that I've been pastoring and shepherding, and I'm going to take up a collection so that we can support our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem during this time of famine so that they will also be able to reach out to the poor and that the gospel could continue going forward. So Paul is taking up this collection from churches who've never met the people in Jerusalem. They've never met them. So why involve the Corinthians? They've never met these people. They don't have anything to do with them. What Paul wants to do by involving all these other churches. 
I believe he's, he's helping them realize that while they have their local church in their cities where they're meeting, they are not the church. They are not the only church. There is a universal church that is made up of all the believers who have put their trust in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And he wants them to remember, hey, this thing is bigger than you. This thing that you're a part of is bigger than you. There are churches all around the world that you have a part, you have a part in supporting, that you can be a part of building and praying for. One of the things that happens, and we see this in Corinth, go back to a few chapters before, Paul says, hey, Corinthians chapter 14, he says, did the gospel originate with you? Like, you mean to tell me that you guys are the only ones who have it right out of all the churches in all the world? You're the only ones who have it right? And that plays into part of their problem was their pride. They did think they were the only ones who, th- who, who had it right. And the problem was there were five different groups within the church or ten different groups within the church who had it right. And they forgot that they were a part of something bigger. And this can easily happen to us. I love our church, but we can't make the mistake of thinking that the gospel came to Georgetown the day that River Rock Bible Church was started. We have to realize that the gospel has been here, that there are other churches in our town that are a part of moving this mission forward. And it's dangerous and prideful for us to say, hey, our church is the only one that has it right. We have to understand that we have brothers and sisters in Christ all throughout this city right now that are meeting in different locations. This is why we do things like we pray on Sunday morning for other churches because we want them to be blessed. We want those churches to be blessed. And a lot of times what happens is if we don't actively remember that we're a part of something bigger, what we start to do is we start to feel threatened when God blesses another church. He might bless them with more more people, more money, more opportunities, and all of a sudden we start feeling bad about our church or we start feeling like maybe we're not doing something right. But instead we can be excited. We can be excited to drive past First Baptist and see that their parking lot is packed for all of their services. And we can say, praise God that they are growing. Praise God for what they're doing in this city. And at the same time, if we drive by another church and we see that their parking lot is not as full, we could say, God, would you bless this church? Would you help them to grow? God, would you bring people that need to hear the gospel to this church? Because we remember that we're a part of something bigger. We remember that we're a part of something bigger. We do this through things like Love Georgetown. Coming up on August 11th, we are going to gather with about 20 to 21 other churches from our city, and we're going to serve our city in the name of Jesus Christ. We're going to say, you know what? Yes, there's, there's differences. There's things we don't agree on, but we do agree on the gospel. And we agree that we need to be serving our city in the name of Jesus so that the gospel may go forward. We have to remember that we are a part of something that is bigger than ourselves. We are not just a church. We are the church. We're a part of the big C church, not just the little C church. The next thing I want us to see is that this one church has been given one mission. Paul's going to remind them of the mission that they're supposed to be on, and he's going to give them some principles about that mission to help them on that. Look at verses 5 through 9. Paul says, I will come to you after I pass through Macedonia, for I'll be traveling through Macedonia, and perhaps I will remain with you or even spend the winter so that you may spend time so that you may send me on my way wherever I go. I don't want to see you now just in passing, for I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord allows. 
but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost because a wide door for effective ministry has opened for me, yet many oppose me. If, uh, many oppose me. So Paul is saying, hey, I want to come see you. I want to come and be a part of the mission that's taking place there in Corinth, but I can't come right now because God has opened another door for me. Paul says that he intends to visit Corinth, but he's got to submit his plans to the Lord. Proverbs 16.9, we read that a man's heart, in a man's heart he makes plans, but the Lord directs his steps. So Paul's saying, hey, I have plans to come see you, but I've got I've to stay open to what God is doing. He says he's got a wide open door. And what I love about this is that Paul is making plans. Even though he knows God may change them, he's making plans. And I want to challenge us this morning with this. If you don't have plans to be on mission, then you are not on mission. Let me say that again. If you do not have plans to be on mission, then you are not on mission. Mission doesn't just happen. We can't just walk through life hoping that something happens. I know I've had seasons of my life where I'm like, I wish God would just give me more opportunities to share the gospel, but I'm not praying for it, and I'm not trying to engage people in spiritual conversations. I'm just thinking, well, I wish this would happen, and guess what? It doesn't happen. But when I sit down and I develop a plan, and I think about the people on my softball team, I think about the people at the Chamber of Commerce that I'm going to go meet with, and I start praying for those people, and I start asking God for opportunities, pretty soon those opportunities start showing up. Why? Because I have a plan. And because I have a plan, I'm seeing those opportunities, and sometimes I'm creating those opportunities. When I was first moved to Georgetown and I was starting this church, I met with a man. Uh, he was actually uh, one of the founders of Panera Bread Company, and he and I were talking, and he was asking me about gospel proclamation. I said, well, I've been, I've been looking for opportunities, but I'm just not seeing any. He goes, why don't you make some? S- stop looking for them and make some. And that was really challenging for me. And so that's something that I've tried more and more is how do I just make opportunities to share the gospel? How do I get, get to the gospel a little bit sooner? And what I love about this is Paul says, I have this wide open door for ministry. But if you go back to Acts chapter 16, what you see is that wide open door for ministry was actually persecution. In Acts chapter 19, we read that Paul had been so effective with the gospel that these people who had committed themselves to idols and to magic and all these things, uh, they actually start burning about $50,000 worth of books. And it affects the industry there. The industry is turned upside down and it actually leads to a riot. Can you imagine Can you imagine if the gospel was so effective in our city that it would turn the economy upside down and people would be rioting because of the gospel? How amazing would it be for us to see something like that? And that happens because Paul was participating in the mission. He was planning to be in on the mission. We plan to preach the gospel. We plan to make sacrifices. We plan to take risks. We plan to go and make disciples, even though we know it's hard. We know it's going to be a challenge. We arrange our lives. We prepare our families for the one mission that God has in the hopes of all of this happening so that we could see more men, women, and children coming to place their faith in Jesus Christ. Paul had a plan to be on mission. We should have a plan 
to be on mission. And what is that one mission? Paul's going to tell us that that one mission is the one message. We have one message that we're called to proclaim, that is Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. I want us to skip down to verses 13 through 14. This is really one of my favorite passages of this whole book, is when Paul gets to these two verses. He says, Be alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like a man. Be strong. Your every action may be done, must be done with love. When Paul uses this language in chapter 13, he's using some very strong military imagery for the people of Corinth. And the message that he's trying to get across is this. He's saying, church, you are an army and you should act like one. You should function like an army. You have to understand that you're on mission and that mission is the message of Jesus Christ and that message has to be guarded. That message has to be guarded. It has to be protected and it has to go forward. And so he tells them to stay alert. I love this, that every single one of those verbs that Paul uses in chapter 13 is an imperative. It means it's a command. These are not suggestions. He's saying you have to stay alert. The church is an army and must act like one. In Acts chapter 20, we see Paul challenging the elders in, in Ephesus with a, something very similar. In 28, he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock that the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to the shepherds of the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come, come in among you not sparing the flock, when, and men will rise up from your own number and deviate doctrines to lure the disciples into following them. Therefore, be on alert, remembering that night and day for three years I did not stop warning each one of you with tears. Paul says, be on alert. We have to be on the lookout. And he's going to give us some principles. There's a couple of things that I want us to understand is that, that a lot of times what happens is we lose sight of the gospel. We lose sight of this gospel message and churches fail when they lose sight of the gospel message. Churches don't fail because someone passed ungodly legislation. Churches don't fail for any other number of reasons, but they fail because they lose sight of the gospel. And that happens in just a couple of ways. One of those is that they, they start believing they have nothing to be saved from. They start feeling like, well, I'm good enough. Or sometimes they'll say that they can save themselves, that if I could just do more, if I could just attend a certain number of services, just do enough good things, then I could save myself. And the last one that I thought of was this, that they stop living the gospel in how they treat each other. They stop living the gospel in how they treat each other. And the world looks on and they say, if that's what Christians act like, if that's how they treat each other, I don't want to have any part of that. And the gospel message is lost. So Paul encourages them, be alert, be on the lookout for that. Stand firm in the gospel. Stand firm in the hope that the gospel gives us. It gives us a new identity in Christ. Uh, my identity is not defined by what I do, what mistakes I've made, how much money I have, or what family I come from. My identity is in Christ and Christ alone. And we, we need to understand that we are saved, we are blessed, we are appreciated, we are reconciled, we are gifted, forgiven, we are made new, and we are victorious. And we have to stand firm in that identity 
and understand that that identity bonds us into one new family. And at the end, he says, act like men and be strong. This is most likely an allusion to what we see throughout the Old Testament before the people of Israel go into battle. Oftentimes, they're, they're very scared. And so the encouragement is be strong and courageous. Act like men. What is the writer trying to communicate? They're saying, hey, you have a battle in front of you. You need to be courageous. You need to go in understanding that, that victory is in your hand. Act powerfully. But it's also a call, I believe, in this passage to maturity. And maturity demonstrates itself with love. That's why after all of these commands, after all of this military language, Paul says this in verse 14, He says, your every action must be done with love. Love is the mark of maturity. And if you go back to chapter 13, Paul gives a list of things. He says, if I can speak in the tongues of angels and of men, if I I have all knowledge to understand all mysteries, but I do not have love, I am nothing. I am nothing without love. We have to guard the gospel. We have to understand that we guard the gospel message not just by being right, but by being in love. We guard the message not just by being right, but through love. Jesus himself said, they will know you are my disciples. How? By your love for one another. By your love for one another. It's not just about being right. It's also about our love for one another. The next thing we see is that we can guard the gospel message through our obedience. And I love this idea, kind of keeping with this idea of of the military. You know, something happens when we put our trust in Jesus Christ. Our obedience to him becomes not because he's some, God is some uh, overlord that's, that's cruel and watching over us, waiting to zap us with lightning when we mess up, but it becomes out of a relationship with a loving father that we desire to honor and obey him. I have read a number of books by an author named Stephen Ambrose. One of my favorite books is The Victors. And it's about, the subtitle is Eisenhower and His Boys. And it talks about how Eisenhower led his troops. One of the things that Eisenhower would later say is that leadership is getting men to do something that you want them to do because they want to do it. And you see that as you study his history, that he had a personal relationship with his men, and he was able to send them into battle, and they were willing to go knowing that they might die because of the love and the connection and the relationship that they had with their general. Now Patton, on the other hand, had the fear of his men. And he was able to get his men to do stuff because they feared him. And what I love about this is that there's a big difference between the two. And when we put our trust in Jesus Christ and we come into a relationship with him, our obedience changes from trying to earn his favor or out of fear that if we mess up, he's going to strike us down to, I love him. I know he cares for me. And when he asks me to do something, it's for my good and for my joy. And as parents, if your parents here, you understand that. I just had a conversation with my kids this last week of, hey, do you believe that when daddy asks you to do this, that I have good things in mind for you? That it's because I want good things for you? Yeah, we believe that. Okay, then I need you to do it. I need you to trust me, even though it seems hard, even though it seems difficult. I need you to trust me that this is for your good. 
The next thing I want us to see is that we guard the gospel message by respecting our leaders. In verses 10 through 12, Paul's going to talk about Timothy and Apollos, and he's going to say, hey, I'm sending Timothy to you. Timothy is this young pastor, and he says, be sure that Timothy has nothing to fear. Now, why would Paul say this unless the Corinthians had a history of treating their leaders poorly? And he even says, hey, I tried to get Apollos to come to you. I know you guys want to see Apollos because he's your favorite teacher, but Apollos doesn't want to see you right now. I get the feeling that kind of Apollos knows that if he goes, that it's going to cause more problems than if he stays away. And I was challenged by this this last week because I started thinking about my own time growing up in the church and what it's been like for me, and I just wrote a couple questions for us to think about. That what happens is the, the Corinthians felt like they knew what was best. They're like, send us, send us Apollos. He's the one we want to follow. We don't want to follow anyone else. Don't give us Timothy, Paul. You, you, it's all right if you come, but we really want Apollos. And what they're saying is, hey, we know better than God about who should lead us. And even though God has appointed these different people to lead us, we don't want them to lead us. We want someone of our choosing. And so I, I started thinking about that, and it made me think about the, the attitudes that sometimes we have towards the leadership. And I just want to challenge us this morning. Is there only one pastor that you're willing to follow? Is there one elder that you look at or one elder that you would say, you know what, I, I don't really want to listen to that elder. I don't really want to follow that staff member. If they ask me to do it, uh, you know, but if Stephen asked me to do it, then yeah, I'll do it. Or... I've been in churches where this happens. People walk in and they see that it's not the lead pastor preaching that Sunday. They turn around and walk out as if God could only speak through one man. How well are you doing at respecting the leaders of this church? Whose mission are you on? Whose mission are you on? Are you willing to follow that? We have to understand that while God's mission is more than one man, God works through men to accomplish it. Going back to our military, we see that 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 requires structure. There's structure throughout the military. There's there's an authority structure. And what's crazy is we see authority structure everywhere in society. When you go to work, I imagine that there's a boss, there's managers, and there's employees. When we go to school, there's a principal, there's teachers, and there's students. When you go home, there's a mom, there's a dad, and then there's children. Yet when it comes to the church, all of a sudden we say, nah, I don't like that structure. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I don't like that. I reject that. And we think that we know better than God about who should lead us and how it should look and what should happen. I want us to look at just a couple passages real quick. Going back to Acts chapter 20, let's read about what Paul says to the elders in Ephesus. He says, be on your guard for yourselves and for all the flock that the Holy Spirit has appointed you as what? Overseers. Does that indicate some sort of leadership? Yeah. And then he says he's appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And then I want us to look at Hebrews 13, 17. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, so they can do this with joy and not with grief, for, what, uh, for that would be unprofitable for you. So what's, what's Paul saying? He says, don't be a pain in the rear. 
to those that are leading you. They're doing the best they can, and they have your best interest in mind because they understand that they're going to stand before Jesus. Myself, the staff, and the elders are going to stand before Jesus someday, and Jesus is going to say, how did you shepherd my family? How did you shepherd my flock? It's time for you to give an account. And there's a weight that comes with that. And every single staff member, every single elder understands the weight of that. And so Paul's saying, hey, don't make their job any harder than it already is. Don't make their job any harder than it already is. Listen to them. Let them lead you. Your small group shepherds, when they, when they challenge you in discipleship and say, hey, I think this is an area where you could grow and I think this is a good next step for you. Do you say, you know what? This is my small group shepherd. They love me. They're trying to disciple me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to at least give this a shot and take this next step. Or do you say, nah, I'm not going to do that. You know, if, if Stephen asked me or if Charlie asked me, I'd, I'd do it. But they're just a small group shepherd. No, we have to understand that God has given us leaders in our lives to guide us and direct us. The next thing I want us to see is that we're called to guard the gospel by recognizing laborers. In verses 15 through 18, Paul's going to give us uh, some of that. Let's look at those verses. Brothers, you know the household of Stephanas. They are the first fruits of Achaia and have devoted themselves to serving the saints. I urge you also to submit to such people and to eat to everyone who works and labors with them. I am pleased to have Stephanas for chance. Fortunatus and Achaicus present, because these men have made up for your absence, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, recognize such people. In the military, they give medals for service, for people who sacrifice. And Paul is saying, as a church, we need to recognize who serve, recognize those who serve and sacrifice. And he even says, these are the ones that you should look to as your leaders. And I can tell you that every single staff member, one of my roles here at River Rock is that, that my job is the hiring and firing of staff members. And I will not hire or maintain someone on staff that is not a servant. And when we get to the time where we're selecting elders and we're thinking and praying through God, who are the men that you're calling to serve as elders at this time? If that person is not demonstrating service to the church, that's... That's an automatic disqualifier. We are looking for those who are desiring to serve the church rather than be served by the church. That's extremely important for us. And Paul says, hey, we ought to recognize those people. And that's why at River Rock, June 2nd, we want to honor our volunteers. We recognize there are a lot of people who serve the church week in, week out, and they do the ministry of the church. So we want to honor them. If you're volunteering in any way, shape, or form, I do hope you'll sign up and let us honor you. Let us enjoy a meal together. We're not asking you to bring anything. All you've got to do is show up, hang out, and we're going to have a nice picnic together and just enjoy some time of fellowship together. Because we want to honor those who serve. I challenge you this morning to think about how you could honor those who serve. Maybe it's to thank a staff member, thank an elder, your children's Sunday school teacher, the ushers, the greeters, the people that are getting here early and staying late to set up and tear down. Have you thanked them lately? Because this doesn't just happen on its own. When we show up, this is just a movie theater. All the signs, all the, all the lights and sound, somebody has to put those up. 
And I'm grateful it's not me anymore. So thank you to our volunteers. I challenge us to thank a volunteer. Let's look at these last verses as we close. Paul goes on and he says, The churches of Asia greet you, Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, along with the church that meets in their home. All the brothers greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The last thing I want us to see about being one church on one mission with one message is that we are to have one fellowship. We are to have one fellowship. And I realize this idea of a holy kiss is like, it's weird for us because we have a hard time not sexualizing things like that in our culture. But what Paul is getting at is that there should be intimacy within this fellowship. That you guys should have a deep love and affection for one another. And I think it's absolutely sad when our fellowship time gets reduced to nothing more than 60 seconds of awkward meet and greet. Right? What we've got to realize as a church is that worship begins at 9.45. Worship begins at 9.45 when we're hanging out in the lobby. We're enjoying coffee together and we're just fellowshipping with each other. How was your week? What happened? How are you doing? How can I pray for you? We've got to have that deep, intimate fellowship with one another. It's that fellowship that unites us as one local church. One local church. We've already talked about Paul's reminding them they're a part of one big C church. But he also wants them to understand that you guys are one little C local church. And in the New Testament, to say, well, I'm a part of the big C church. I don't need the local church. That was unheard of. That was unheard of because you can't be a part of the big C church without being a part of the little C church. Nowhere do we see anyone who's not a part of a local body. And Paul says in that local body, there should be some deep, intimate fellowship. You guys should love one another. When you think about coming to church on Sunday morning, in fact, with our family, we don't even say we're going to church. We say we're going to worship with the church. Do you wake up excited? Do you wake up and say, you know what, I can't wait to see Janine Argon and her smiling face as I check my kids in. Do you wake up and excited to see the people that are your brothers and sisters in Christ that are this local church? And when you get here, if there's a face that you don't see, a friend that you don't see, do you ever think, you know, I didn't see so-and-so today. I ought to, I ought to give them a call and just let them know, hey, I missed you. Man, I was really looking forward to seeing you. I didn't see you this morning. I missed you. I can't wait to see you on Wednesday night at small group. I hope everything's all right. Talk to you later. Send them a text. Let them know they were missed. Do you miss those that aren't here? Genuinely miss them? Or do you just come and fill a seat? When somebody's not in your small group, I, I love this Angela Pinkerton uh, every once in a while, she, she misses small group or she misses on Sunday. And uh, I'll send her a text on Monday. Just say, hey, I know you were traveling, um, but I just wanted to let you know you were missed, and I'll see you on, on Wednesday night at small group. And every time she's about to be gone, she's like, I'm going to be gone. You don't have to text. I'm like, I know you're going to be gone, but I'm going to text because I mean it. I really did miss seeing you. I missed seeing your face. I'm so excited to see you again on Wednesday. Do we have those kinds of relationship? Can we develop those kinds of relationship? Take that time to get to know the people around you. These last two verses, Paul says, this greeting is in my own hand, Paul. 
If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him, Maranatha, that is, Lord come. And then I love he ends this way. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. If there was ever a church that deserved a tongue lashing from word one, it was the Corinthian church. They were deeply divided. They were tolerating immorality. They were suing each other. They were fighting each other. And they were hindering the gospel by all that they were doing within the church. And yet Paul ends this letter where he starts, which is with the grace of Jesus Christ. He says, I know this is hard. I know you guys are struggling, but I love you. I love you because Jesus Christ loved you, and I know you're not perfect. You got some issues, you got some junk you got to work through. But the grace of Jesus Christ covers that. And because of that, I can say that I love you. I don't love everything you're doing, but I want to walk with you in that grace because I want to see you reach that maturity in Jesus Christ. How many of us, how many of us, when, we, when we're offended by our brother and sister in Christ, when something happens, somebody says something, we just say, forget them. We're not willing to extend that grace. We're not willing to extend that, that love. Think about all the problems the Corinthians had, yet Paul says, I love you. Because I know you're not perfect, but you're my brother, you're my sister in Christ. And so I extend you God's grace, and I love you. Let us be a church that understands that we are a part of the Big C Church. We're just one little C Church that's a part of the Big C Church. And as a part of that big church, we have one mission, which is the spread of the one message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we do that in fellowship one fellowship with one another. Before we close, I...